Chapter Seven of *The Girls of Gardenville* by Carol Watson Rankin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: A Case of Suspended Gratitude. One. When Pauline, who afterwards grew up to be famous for marshmallow paste, and in consequence became an important member of the Sweet Sixteen, was very young indeed, the Winthrops possessed a maid named Johanna. This Johanna, at that time a particularly green Swedish girl, had proved as a housemaid a distinct failure. But when, after a lapse of six years, she unexpectedly presented herself at the door of her former mistress, with the announcement that she was the widowed mother of three little children, and much in need of assistance, Mrs. Winthrop listened with interest. "'So poor, so poor,' was Johanna's expressive conclusion." "'A girl of five, you say?' asked Mrs. Winthrop kindly. "'A boy of three and a small baby?' "'Yah,' yeah, corroborated Johanna, whose speech still remained decidedly foreign. "'And the boy, she has have no clothes.' "'Why, Johanna, how providential! "'The children's ages, I mean,' amended Mrs. Winthrop, "'suddenly fearing that Johanna might suppose she was rejoicing "'because the boy had nothing to wear. "'Do you know that's just my number?' I have a girl of six, a boy of four, and a great big baby, and I've been wishing I could find exactly the right sort of family to take their outgrown clothes. They all grow like weeds. Just sit down for a moment, and I'll bring you a great big bundle of things. Four times a year for the next decade, Johanna halted her bony, half-starved horse at the Winthrop's neat horse block and went hopefully inside the Winthrop's kitchen to receive the unfailing bundle. She lived too far away to make more frequent pilgrimages, for, besides the three children and the tall old horse with truly remarkable bones, he wore them on the outside like armor, Mr. Winthrop said. Johanna had acquired a farm about fourteen miles from the town. Judging from its productions, Mrs. Winthrop concluded that the farm was even less prosperous than the horse. Johanna, however, was nothing if not grateful. When the bundle was safely tucked away under the seat of the wagon, which always looked as if each journey would surely be its last. Johanna would grope about in the straw and finally bring forth an untidy parcel containing a dozen undersized eggs, a few gnarled beets, a stunted cabbage, or an emaciated chicken. Apparently nothing from livestock to root crops ever throve on Johanna's farm, but the poor woman gave the best she had, and Mrs. Winthrop appreciated the spirit that prompted the gifts. Johanna, Mrs. Winthrop would say, is certainly the most grateful creature I ever knew, as well as the most incapable. I would defy anybody to produce naughtier turnips or pithier radishes than those Johanna brings me. But it's the best she can do, poor thing. The little Winthrops continued to outgrow their garments, and the little Hansons continued to fall heirs to them, and it seemed a most convenient arrangement all around. I guess you'd better give this to the Hansons. Pauline would say, holding up a discarded garment. There's an ink stain on the skirt, and the sleeves are too short. Besides, I never did like the color. Or, Gordon would say, Can't I put these shoes in the pile for the Hansons, mother? There's a hole in the toe, and they're getting too short. Even the fat baby learned to add his broken toys to the pile, and the little Winthrops liked to imagine the delight of the little Hansons upon opening the bundle. "'It's better than fairy tales and castles in Spain,' said Pauline, "'because the Hansons are real.' "'I don't think the horse is,' Gordon would say. "'I believe he's a ghost.' 
Well, Johanna's real enough, said Mrs. Winthrop, even if her turnips are such stuff as dreams are made on. And I'm glad we're able to help the poor thing. So am I, returned Pauline comfortably. Indeed, particularly to Pauline, who was a somewhat selfish young person, not at all given to making sacrifices for other people, was the idea of helping the Hansons a pleasant one. She was much impressed by Johanna's gratitude to her mother, and she decided that when she grew to womanhood she too would be a dispenser of charity, not so much for sweet charity's sake as for the untasted pleasure of having persons grateful to her. It must be perfectly heavenly to be thanked, she would say, adding a torn petticoat to the pile for the Hansons. Some day I hope I'll know how it feels. But while waiting for this joyous time to come, she felt beautiful glows of satisfaction whenever she thought of Hilda, the wearer of her cast-off garments, and she tried to picture the other girl in them. It was a pleasant fancy that somewhere in the world there existed a girl only a little younger than herself, who was filled to the brim with gratitude every morning and every night as she put on or laid aside the more or less damaged gowns that careless Pauline had so generously outgrown. That the girl might be other than grateful, Pauline never suspected. Although she had spent so many hours in wondering about the appearance of the other wearer of her clothes, Pauline had never seen her, for Johanna always left Hilda at home with the youngest child, who, like her brother, the horse, the chickens, and the vegetables, seemed to be perpetually ailing. In addition to the usual ills of childhood, and in spite of her mother's vigilance, he had at different times broken a leg, an arm, and a collarbone, besides having been severely burnt while playing with matches. He was certainly not a safe child to be left without a protector. Once, indeed, Johanna had taken all three of her excited children to town, but Pauline had been in school that day, and had missed seeing the sharer of her wardrobe. She mourned about it for days. She had missed such a beautiful opportunity to be thanked. The visit was not repeated, for the strain on the rickety wagon had been so great that cautious Johanna had not cared to take the risk a second time. The day came, however, when Pauline met Johanna's daughter under somewhat unusual circumstances. The summer that Pauline was sixteen years old, she was rejoicing in a new bicycle, her first. So, too, was her brother Gordon. But Gordon would have rejoiced much more heartily if Mrs. Winthrop had not insisted that he should take a daily ride with his sister, who, of course, could not be permitted to ramble about the country alone. "'I just hate,' grumbled Gordon to his sympathetic boyfriends, to be poking about the country with a girl that hasn't wind enough to go uphill, spunk enough to go down, or speed enough for a level road. I'd as soon go riding with an ice wagon. Still, under her brother's decidedly unwilling tutorship, Pauline was daily becoming more and more proficient. Before the summer was over, she could follow Gordon's somewhat difficult lead along the winding, thread-like paths at the edge of the roadside, and she had learned to scramble to her feet without brotherly assistance after even the most humiliating of tumbles. She continued, however, to tumble. Gordon was certainly not an ideal escort. Within the city limits, Gordon always ignored his sister and pretended that she did not belong to him. With his head up, his arms folded, and with a most exasperating expression of lofty superiority on his boyish face, he would ride for miles along a smooth road without touching his handlebars and without a backward glance at his laboring charge. Pauline, short of breath, pedaling with might and main, and clutching her handlebars with a vice-like grip, would follow meekly along a block or two behind her lordly companion. 
Sometimes, indeed, Pauline could not help wishing that Gordon would run into some of the objects that seemed to have such an irresistible attraction for her own wheel, but he never did. I just wish, Pauline would puff, that Gordon would run over a few puppies and chickens the way I'm always doing. It'd do me good all the way through to see him go down flat just for once. If Mother could see the way he behaves, I guess she wouldn't feel so easy. However, since they departed and returned together, Mrs. Winthrop was satisfied, if the children were not. So Gordon, the disdainful, and Pauline, the disdained, continued to take their daily ride after their usual unsociable fashion. 2. One day this uncongenial pair determined to explore a hitherto untried route. It proved an unusually interesting one, notwithstanding the indubitable fact that it seemed even more plentifully supplied with runoverable puppies and hysterical chickens than were the more familiar byways. At five o'clock, Gordon pulled up and dismounted. "'Bring on your ice wagon,' he shouted. "'I want to see your cyclometer.' "'All right,' panted Pauline. "'It's done a lot of work today.' Gordon gravely inspected the instruments. Gordon's said that they were six miles from town, while Pauline's stated with equal positiveness that the distance was 87 miles. As neither cyclometer ever told the exact truth, however, the young people knew only that they were far from home and that the wind had suddenly turned cold. It must be kind of late, said Gordon. Of course, if I were alone, I'd go on for five or six miles farther. As it is, I guess we'd better make tracks for home. Pauline expressed her willingness to make tracks, and proceeded at once to make some that zigzagged down the road. Gordon leaped to his saddle, caught his pedal, and shot away ahead of plodding Pauline. As usual, he kept ungallantly far in advance of his toiling sister, who felt unusually tired and rather more than commonly abused. Moreover, she was so fully occupied with following the deviations of a steep, tortuous path that she failed to notice presently which turn her brother had taken where the roads forked. Dismounting, uncertain Pauline found faint traces of wheel tracks along both dusty roads, but one seemed more traveled than the other, and Pauline naturally selected it. At first she found it all uphill and very sandy. Pushing her wheel before her, she laboriously climbed the hill. "'Why!' she exclaimed when she reached the top and saw what was beyond. "'What a splendid long slope! I can just sweep right down like a bird!' No wonder Gordon's out of sight. Pauline mounted confidently, sailed down a steep incline, flashed round a sharp curve, and plunged without warning into a wide, stagnant pool, which fortunately was not deep. Drenched to the skin, covered with an unpleasant green slime, and feeling decidedly shaky, Pauline dragged herself and her wheel up the muddy bank and looked up and down the road for her brother. "'Gordon!' she called. "'Oh, Gordon! Gordon!' There was no reply, for Gordon had taken the other road, and finding it smooth and moderately level, was sailing round its pleasant curves, happy in the supposition that his long-suffering sister was following at a respectful distance. All roads looked alike to Pauline, because all her attention was always needed to keep her wheel going. But even to unobservant Pauline, the surrounding scenery looked different from any she had seen before. "'I must have taken the wrong road,' said she, wringing the water from her dripping skirts as she stood shivering by the roadside. What in the world should I do? Poor Pauline felt that there was little use in making plans. 
She could neither walk nor ride, for the front tire of her bicycle showed an ugly gash, and something was wrong with one of her knees. At first there was no sign of life in either direction. Never had the girl known such a lovely deserted spot. Pauline began to wonder if she were to be left to starve by the roadside or to be eaten by some stray bear. She hoped no wandering cow would happen along. She was mortally afraid of cows. When she had waited for what seemed like several hours, although in reality it was probably only a few moments, she saw a cloud of dust at the top of the hill. From it there emerged presently a black-and-white object that, as it slowly approached, seemed strangely familiar, although for a long minute the girl could not place it. Then, with a cry of joy, she recognized Johanna Hansen's unmistakable horse. "'Oh, Mrs. Hansen!' cried Pauline. "'I'm so glad to see you. Have you seen my brother?' "'Well, I tank I don't know him,' said puzzled Johanna, with her kindly Swedish voice, that at that moment seemed sweeter than music to the frightened girl. "'Oh, yes, you do. Gordon Winthrop, you know. I'm Pauline. You've seen both of us lots of times.' "'My gracious! I not know you at all, Miss Pauline. Have you just been take a steam in the mud? You keep on my swagging quick, Miss Pauline. I take you on my farm and make you all dry on your clothes. It's only two, three miles.' No invitation was ever accepted with greater alacrity. Pauline lifted her wheel into the rickety wagon and climbed in beside Johanna, who pulled some of the straw on which she was sitting up about the girl's shoulders, for the air was sharp and Pauline's teeth were chattering. When half an hour later they reached the miserable little farm, Johanna offered shivering Pauline some of the girl's own cast-off garments to replace the wet and slimy ones that clung so persistently to her body. "'Cast your blouses on the Hansons,' paraphrased Pauline, struggling into one that proved rather a tight fit." And, lo, after many days they shall return, and the last state of that garment shall be very much worse than the first. Still, it's warm and dry, and that's something. Ugh, that horrible pond! When she emerged, comfortably, if somewhat shabbily attired, from the tiny bedroom, she found Johanna making coffee over a battered stove, and a girl of about her own size setting the table. There, at last, was the girl with so much reason for gratitude— Pauline, realizing that the longed-for moment had arrived, was almost glad that she had plunged bodily into the slimy pond. That, thought Pauline, is surely Hilda. I suppose she is saying inside, How can I ever thank my benefactress? She's probably so full of grateful feelings that she can't get a single word out. I've been like that. But how awfully that old blue skirt of mine does hang on her. She isn't my build at all. And my, how cross she looks! It was Hilda, and she did look cross. There was a heavy frown between her dark brows, and her dark eyes, whenever they rested on Pauline, were like thunderclouds. Her actions certainly spoke louder than words, for she flung the heavy plates on the thinly covered table and banged the oven doors. There must be a storm a-brewing, thought Pauline. I wonder why she behaves so. I thought at first that she was only shy. I'm kind of queer and clumsy when I'm shy but it really looks now as if she resents having me here. Perhaps she thinks I ought to speak first. "'Are you Hilda?' asked Pauline politely. There was no response. Hilda merely frowned darkly. "'Perhaps,' suggested Pauline, "'you don't speak English?' Hilda frowned even more darkly, 
but a moment later, when a lean, hungry cat sniffed at the milk that Hilda was skimming, the girl, with a defiant, half-triumphant glance at Pauline, said in unmistakable English, "'You go they, you bad old cat!' The girls were alone, for as soon as kind-hearted Johanna had provided her unexpected visitor with dry clothing, she had retired to the tumble-down barn to make some necessary repairs to the bony horse's harness. Pauline had begged that she might be driven to town that night, and Johanna, knowing that Mrs. Winthrop would be wild with anxiety, had consented to do it. But Hilda, left to play hostess, was certainly far from sociable. She fairly slammed the boiled eggs upon the table, and looked as if she would rather hurl the thick slices of bread at Pauline than pass them properly. This was so foreign to the ethics of Swedish hospitality that the bewildered guest determined to discover how she had offended Johanna's eldest. She went to the point at once. "'Hilda,' said she, "'why don't you like me?' By way of answer, Hilda flung a stick of wood into the stove and banged the lid into place. "'You don't like me at all, do you?' persisted Pauline, rising with difficulty because of her bruised knee, and standing beside the stove. "'Do you, Hilda?' "'No,' snapped honest Hilda with a flash of her brown eyes. "'Why not?' I like you, or I would if you'd let me. I've always wanted to see you. I've thought of you lots of times, but but not like this. Hilda poured milk into a saucer for the lean cat, but vouchsafed no reply. I should think, said Pauline plaintively, that you'd like me just a little. I've done so much, so very much for you. Do you think I like your old clothes? demanded the Swedish girl, an indignant red suddenly flooding her dark cheek. I tank, sometime, I just hate you. Why, Hilda, what for? If it is not for you, explained Hilda indignantly, maybe sometime I have something new, not all the time old. Always I have your old dress, your old shoe, look at him, your old hat, your old stocking, your old book, your old doll. Not once, ever in my life, anything new. Always hole or ink or rag or maybe patch. Anything you don't want, anything too bad for you, then I get him. It is easy to give away what is not good. Hilda, began Pauline. But Hilda, once started, was not to be stopped, until she had said all she had to say. All the time since I am baby, continued Hilda vehemently, I tank me, there's that Windrup girl, all new dress, all new shoe, all new book with cover on, all new hat, and me, me. But the thought of the contrast was too much for Hilda, who, to hide the tears that suddenly rushed to her eyes, turned abruptly to thrust two more sticks of wood into the already crowded stove. Why, Hilda, gasped astonished Pauline, I'm sorry about that. I never supposed you'd mind. I thought you'd like the things. Why, I'm awfully sorry. Hilda, however, had not waited for the apology. The storm having burst, the Swedish girl rushed away like any other tornado. Pauline did not see her again that evening. Half an hour later, Pauline, under a lap-robe made of dusty potato rags, was jogging homeward beside Johanna and behind the bony horse. The rickety wagon gave protesting creaks and threatened loudly at every jolt to fall to pieces, and twice Johanna was obliged to dismount from her perch on an overturned pail to tie up the harness. But at last the lights of Gardenville twinkled into sight. It was almost eleven when Pauline was restored to an exceedingly anxious mother and to a deeply remorseful brother. 
Gordon had not missed her until almost six o'clock, when he was approaching the outskirts of the town, and his frame of mind during the evening had been anything but pleasant. He turned quite pale under his freckles when Johanna's horse stopped at the gate. He was certain that it was his father who had gone forth to search for Pauline, returning with the news that the girl was either dead or hopelessly unfindable. There were two results from the girl's adventure. Gordon henceforth looked after his sister with a brotherly solicitude quite wonderful to see. Indeed, the other girls fairly envied Pauline for having a brother, and it slowly dawned upon Pauline, who had been singularly thoughtful all the way home, that there were several kinds of charity. She puzzled out for herself the difference between making sacrifices of the things, material and otherwise, that she herself wanted, and the giving away of things for which she had no use. The result was quite as beneficial in her case as it was in Gordon's. The next bundle that went to the Hansons contained for Hilda a fresh bright ribbon that Pauline really hated to give away, and a new book with a cover on, purchased by Pauline with her own not-too-abundant pocket-money. When spring came, Hilda, who was perhaps a little ashamed of her outburst, drove to town with her mother and carried to Pauline a huge bunch of marsh-marigolds, which Pauline readily recognized as a peace-offering. "'You come by our house some day,' said Hilda, whose brown eyes beamed kindly as she presented the blossoms, "'and I give you a good, good time.'" End of chapter 7